This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Robin Curtis, and I played Lieutenant Savick in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, and Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And you're listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in Standard Orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit. Today, Zach and I have given the order to stop all engines, assemble all hands, and render honors for one of the true legends of Star Trek. That's right. The legend is Dorothy D.C. Fontana. And so much credit goes to the actors for the success of the franchise. But it is, and it was, the incredible writing and subject matter that was equal in making Star Trek a success. And if there is a a Mount Rushmore of the original series, D.C. Fontana is on it, isn't she, Ken? She should be made so many huge contributions, and from a, you know, from from an interesting position of being, you know, an admin assistant, uh, to um, to being able to write and successfully write some of the most successful scripts in Star Trek, and in the roles she played between the the original series, the animated series, the Next Generation, I mean, just just amazing. But I, I mean, and she her credits go far beyond Star Trek as well. I, I don't want to just hone it in there, but that is where she she really got her start. But yeah, just an incredible lady, a, a big personality, and somebody that was really well, um, really well liked ac- across, you know, um, all the folks, and, and, a, and a fan favorite when when she made those um, those appearances within the the different conventions that have taken place. She really is somebody special. Yeah, absolutely, and she did have a very interesting road to becoming a writer, uh, especially on Star Trek. I mean, she started out as a, as a typist. Mm-hmm. And then a yep. secretary, and then, you know, the signs of the times, right? Uh, she decided mm-hmm. to use her pen name, D.C. Fontana, because, you know, you submit a name like that, people aren't going to know if you're a man or a woman. You need to submit a, you know, a script with Dorothy Fontana, uh, being the 1960s and a lot of, you know, sexism and chauvinism going on, and that would get thrown into the uh, discard pile without it being read. But you put D.C. on there, it gets people's attention, the words speak for themselves, you get a job. And you take it from there, you know, and uh, and far beyond the stars, the Deep Space Nine episode uh, where they go back to the 50s sci-fi, uh, they actually make a reference to this. Uh, I, I forget the character's name, but the character that Nana Visitor Kira, you know, whoever she's playing in Benny Russell's 1950s world, uh, it's a similar situation. And she was inspired by Dorothy Fontana, like that character, like, oh, I'm going to use my initials and people aren't going to know that I'm a woman. So uh, you know, I think it's very creative of her to get the job done that way, but sad that she had to do that. But everybody does know her as DC Fontana, and that's why. 
That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're doing this show uh, to, like I said, to take a few minutes and kind of go through what she contributed uh, it, it to, to the franchise. And I mean, the holistic franchise. Uh, but, uh, you know, for me, it's, you know, we were talking off mic a little bit, Zach, and, um, you know, we've had some, some various uh, folks and, you know, uh, guest star roles and things that had passed here and there, um, you know, the last year or so. Um, and, and all of that is sad, but when, when somebody who was really a part of the foundation of what Star Trek is and what it became, it really hits you kind of hard, you know? And so that it's, it's kind of funny. I've got this, this dual kind of thing going on with me right now. I'm very sad that she's gone, but I'm very happy, uh, for the contributions that, that she had. And, you know, and I'm hoping that in her personal life, um, you know, she, she, she had a good run and was, um, was happy. I mean, she, she made a lot of people very, very happy. She, she made some huge contributions. Uh, you know, so I, I, I'm at the one side, I'm mourning her loss. And on the other side, I'm really celebrating, you know, what she's done for, for all of us and, and celebrating her life. Yeah. And you know, I honestly, I didn't know if she was married or not until I was reading articles about her and her obituary articles and, uh, married to Dennis, Skokak, uh, they got married in the 80s, and he was a cinematographer. So uh, mm-hmm. they, they didn't have any children, but uh, she did have a family life there. And and you're right, you know, uh, just looking at how old she was, she was 80. Okay, which, mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds old, but do the math. I mean, she was working on Star Trek in her late 20s. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. think about that, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, I'm in my early 30s now. I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's younger than me when she was, you know, laying the foundation of the Star Trek universe. So that's that's crazy to think about. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you're absolutely right too, because, you know, Gene Kuhn, who was a a similar, you know, Mount Rushmore head of, Mm -hmm. uh, Star Trek, uh, he died in the seventies, you know, I mean, he, he was just as, uh, intricate in the creation of the show as Gene Roddenberry and DC Fontana. And, and he sadly didn't live long enough to see Star Trek's resurgence. So there's, you know, he doesn't get a lot of talk, you know, uh, Leonard Nimoy, always made it a point to bring up Gene Kuhn when they were talking about, you know, the history of Star Trek, which is, you know, being the, uh, okay. the give credit where credit is due guy that Leonard was most of the time. Uh, <laughs> he would always mention Gene Kuhn. And then, of course, Gene Roddenberry, he passed away more than 25 years ago. And Robert H. Justman, I think it was about 10 years ago now that he's passed away. So, you know, all these big names you see in the in the end credits of Star Trek, they're they're starting to go, too. It's not just about the, the actors, as we mentioned in our open. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's funny as as you do grow old and older, um, you know, it's it's it, you see in a lot of the writings when they talk about mortality and, um, and and the passage of time and how fast it truly goes, how real it seems. And, uh, you know, to us, I think, you know, we, you still watch uh, the original series as much as we do. So we're kind of, you know, we're, we're constantly uh, 53 years in the past so to speak <laughs> looking at things and you see the you see the names you see the actors and all that stuff and you know you're, you're taken back and then uh you realize ironically the next generation will be the next generation and i know we've seen um again you know with, with guest stars and things like that with within that series start to go but yeah it's it's happening quickly it, it really is so yeah, but back to to Dorothy. Um, I, I first, thanks for for putting this together and uh, and turn around. So this is um, Wednesday, the fourth of December, where we're recording this uh, the day after a notification, and it was 
it was Zach who sent me a text. Uh, you know, I've been working, I've been on social media, anything, uh, when I, when I got that note from you and, uh, you know, it just, it just takes you out of your game a little bit. Uh, but you know, so quickly to say, Hey, let's, you know, let's, let's get together and, and, and talk about her. And I think that's the, the best time to do it is, is fairly quickly because it's, it's so, um, I don't know. It's, it's just so in the present. And, uh, I, I, like I said, I appreciate you putting all this together. Absolutely. So being an original series podcast, it's only appropriate that we kind of look at her scope of her Star Trek work. And also, you know, she worked on Star Trek beyond the original series as well. So we can, we can touch on some of that, uh, for Dorothy Fontana, but you know, she actually, uh, looking back at how she even got into Star Trek, uh, she worked for Samuel A. Peoples as a secretary and Samuel A. Peoples, of course, wrote, uh, where no man has gone before. Uh, the second right. pilot. So there's a connection there. Uh, then she worked on The Lieutenant, uh, which is, of course, Gene Roddenberry's show. Uh, and then she eventually became working on Star Trek and was appointed the uh, the story editor after not a long time because she was such a great writer. And uh, she stayed on on a full-time basis uh, until uh, the second season was over, and she went on to pursue some freelance work. Uh, but she kept in touch with Roddenberry over the years. She worked with him on Genesis 2, one of his many... <laughs> attempts at mm-hmm. uh, getting back into the game after Star Trek. Uh, but she also became a story editor and an associate producer on Star Trek, the animated series where, where she wrote inarguably the best episode of that show. And we'll get to that. Uh, and then of course went on to next gen. She launched next gen with uh, Droddenberry and cause he brought uh, Robert H. Justman and David Gerald in, you know, all the, all his old friends yep. from, from, from TOS from TNG launched. And uh, unfortunately that didn't last long. They all kind of went their separate ways. Uh, they had felt, uh, you know, Roddenberry wasn't the same as it was in the 60s uh, for, for good or for bad. Uh, but she did finally cap it off her, her Star Trek, uh, well, her official Star Trek career with an episode of Deep Space Nine uh, and then did the fan film uh, To Serve All My Days, the Star Trek New Voyages fan film, which starred Walter Koenig. So that's kind of the the overview of her Star Trek uh, career. But, you know, let, let's, let's, uh, let's take a... Closer look at some of these episodes here, Ken, and any ones that stick out to you. Now, just looking at her uh, overall body of work, you know, she has her name attached to 10 episodes, right? But as mm-hmm. we know, as a story editor, I mean, she had her hand in so much more uh, because right. they would all pass through her desk. You know, she would help kind of hone character and make sure things were consistent in the universe. And, uh, you know, the character of Spock alone was very influenced by DC Fontana. And I, I think we have her and Leonard Nimoy equally to really thank for the identity of that character as he evolved over the course of the show. Yeah. Yeah. She, she was an integral part of all of it. And yet, you know, it's funny when you, when you learn and you read about what goes on uh, in the writer's room and it was always, it's always interesting to me because it, it happens, you know, in, in a lot of shows today that one or two names are usually attributed with writing the screenplay. Uh, but it really is a, uh, a whole bunch of people. Uh, you know, Gene Roddenberry rewrote tons of it too. Right. Uh, it, it, it's, it's amazing how many people it takes to get one script together and, um, and the work that's involved and the timeline that they have to do it in is incredible. Uh, but, you know, with her, um, her creativity, I think her input, I mean, she's got an indelible stamp on, on Star Trek. And you're right, her development of the characters, um, you know, it's, I think it's really understated, to be honest with you, uh, what she's done. Obviously, on very sad occasions like this, you, you, you dive in a little deeper. You know, we always knew that she played a pretty big role. But when you see the list of these episodes, 
and how impactful they were to the series. It, it really is like, wow, yeah, she was involved in, you know, uh, you, you talk about 10 episodes. She probably had a hand in probably 60 more of those 79 episodes. She had to have. Yeah, and just looking at the list here, uh, Charlie X, mm-hmm. good episode. You know, I, I feel like uh, when, uh, before I was really getting back into Star Trek, as, as, as you do when you do a podcast about it every week, uh, I was like, yeah, Charlie X. It was that one with the teenager guy and... You had the powers, whatever. And then you rewatch, like, oh, no, this is actually saying a lot about, like, puberty and growing up and loneliness and adolescence and uh, learning about just, you know, finding your place in the world with superpowers, you know? And uh, it is, like, it's like a dark origin story of, like, like a comic book villain or something like that. And there's a lot, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot to that episode. And uh, that was her first, uh, that was her first foray. And that's what kind of opened the door for her to continue on the show. I thought, um, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, to me, um, you know, we're doing an episode review type of thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> what I, what I really liked about that, that Charlie X too was, you know, it also said, uh, it spoke a lot about parenting or the lack of, mm. or how important it is. And I thought that that was a key, a key piece that for whatever reason, for all the different, um, uh, subject matter that they were covering, uh, with him and his character, that to me kind of, you know, uh, stood out. I, I don't know why, but it's just one of those things where I, you know, terrible accident. He's alone. They do the best they can. Uh, they leave him with others, but you know, it, it really was, um, Kirk and Rand who, who took over to, to really try to, um, guide and, and be good parents. And, you know, he had, he had developed, um, these, these powers and abilities that, that made it very difficult, obviously. And he wasn't ready, but it, you know, like I said, not to get too deep into it, but it was, I thought, very cleverly done, well-written episode. I, I always enjoyed it, and um, you know, I, I'm looking at this list, and you know, there's the, the ones that really pop at me. Where I just go, man, those those were were great episodes. Was uh, Journey to Babel, mm-hmm. uh, the Ultimate Computer, the Enterprise Incident. Those are the three, you know, on this list. I just go, those were. Um, incredible and in, in very action oriented too, you know, which yeah. I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, those episodes right there, th- th- those are definitive Star Trek. I mean, they laid the groundwork for so much that was to come. She introduced Spock's parents, you know, she introduces mm-hmm. so much of the Federation, like the Andorians and the Tellarites, and uh, that, that, that echoes on through, you know, Enterprise and beyond with them being founding members of the Federation. You get Ultimate Computer, you see the fleet. You know, you see more Constitution-class starships and war games and Deutronic computers, Daystrom Institute, you know, Richard Daystrom. That goes on for all the next eras of Star Trek. Enterprise Incident, of course, has the uh, Romulans and the Klingon Alliance, and the ship is the same. And, uh, you know, so much of, of what came after Star Trek was uh, had shades of that, the cloaking device, and it's just definitive Star Trek. And, you know, also, like, you know, this side of Paradise, Right. I mean, that that's mm-hmm. that's yeah. really the first episode where you get to see, you know, Spock out of character. Right. And mm-hmm. that's what. Uh, but that was fascinating for people because he was so emotionless and had a certain, you know, way about him. And when you see him act out of character, that's what makes it so memorable, you know, uh, and that connected with a lot of people. You know, all the I grok Spock people back in the days, I understand it. We're like, oh, it's Spock, <laughs> he's dreamy. He's got a girlfriend right. now, you know, so people connected to that. And um, you, you speak about Charlie X being about parenting. I thought it was interesting. An episode on here that honestly, I didn't really know she wrote. Because I've seen this episode maybe like two or three times ever, 
uh, was Friday's mm-hmm. Child, and I, yeah. you know, I never really revisit that one. I don't think of that one as a like a good episode. <laughs> so no, really, if there's only reason. if there's one yeah. on here though, really, that's the only one I look at. I'm like, ah, eh, you know, there really wasn't too good uh, <laughs> Friday's Child, yeah. but it was about you know it was about parenting, you know, and I think and I believe I've, I've read or saw an interview with her talking about it, and it kind of it was kind of her putting some of herself into. Uh, that story, like, yeah, not, not every woman wants to stay home and be a housewife, right? And that's not, right. not that's not like the overall theme, but there are definitely shades of that in the main character uh, in that episode where she has the kid and she doesn't really want it, and you know, dealing with all those factors. And you know, based off her, you know, female perspective, she has a more unique perspective than that than this other, you know, all these other guys in the writing room who are male. Yeah, excellent point. Excellent point. <laughs> I'm aligned with you. It's not. It's not one that I go back to very often, uh, but I do enjoy, you know, watching any episode of Star Trek. But yeah, it, 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 I think that perspective um, is is was probably very critical in the time, right? Because they they talk about. I know people tease all the time about Star Trek sex appeal, you know, with the the miniskirts and all that. And I know we've talked to the fact that it was kind of a, a rebellious uh, thing that women were doing. back in the day, uh, you know, to actually and express themselves a little bit more. And I'm guessing the truth on that is probably somewhere in the middle right? <laughs> uh, when it, when it comes to those outfits. But at any rate, um, you know, Star Trek was, was meant to be a liberating show. Uh, and, and she brought aspects to it and demonstrably, you know, showing that, uh, you know, that, that, that women were uh, an integral part or at least she was in making that show successful from the writer's perspective. And, um, you know, you look at it now and, and you look at writer's room and they're so diverse, very different thought processes going into it. Um, you know, people of, of all backgrounds putting these shows together. And to me, it's, you know, again, Star Trek in, in many ways, if, if they weren't leading from it from the front in the beginning, they, they picked up on it quickly or in many ways they did lead from the front. And I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real tribute to her talent that, um, that she she contributed as much as she did. And I don't want to use the term that she was allowed to do any of that stuff. She earned that right. And, yes. uh, you know, but it could be very easy for for people to um, to be dismissive or, you know, especially in an all-boys club to kind of push that away. And, you know, um, you shouldn't be saying, to, oh, give credit to so-and-so for this and that. Uh, like I said, I think her writing was so good and it stood out so well um, that, they realized it, realized it, it would have been foolish uh, not to uh, hire her full-time to, to drive what she drove as a story editor. And then with these 10 episodes that she created, you know, um, indelibly stamped in, in the history of Star Trek. And that's what I love about the original series is, you know, all, all the principles in which the rest of Star Trek is built upon you know, it, it still has quirky 60s uh, mindsets to certain things, but so many ways, not at, just in the stories, um, but how they created the stories uh, it goes to show that this show was ahead of its time. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, look at the Enterprise incident, right? She has a female mm-hmm. Romulan commander, right? One of the most memorable guest stars in the series, you know? And uh, as we said in a recent episode, you know, the, the other alien races had <laughs> female captains and first officers, before we did so um you know and she based that off of uh off of, off of current events as well 
uh, the Enterprise incident. Now, as I understand it, uh, there was a ship that kind of drifted into uh, foreign waters, and there was a big international incident about it. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, I know that she wasn't actually happy with how the episode turned out, the Enterprise incident, <laughs> which is interesting because that's one of my favorite episodes and I think regarded as uh, a great episode by most people, by most fans. But, you know, when you create something and somebody like goes and changes it, no matter of how good it is, good or bad it might be, you're like, well, that's not what I wrote and you guys changed it. So, I mean, she didn't say she didn't like it, but she's like, well, I had a different idea for something and they changed it. So it's always interesting to see that perspective. And that, uh, and that actually reminds me that you know, she actually did a rewrite on the city on the edge of forever. You know, everybody, I think everybody did, <laughs> you know, Roddenberry did. Everybody did. She yeah. did, right? She yeah, yeah. probably had a hand in it. Um, yeah. But you, you, you look at something like that and you think about that. People are always like, oh yeah, Harlan Ellison wrote for Star Trek or, you know, whatever. It's like, yeah, but he wrote one episode once and, you know, DC Fontana is here laying the foundation of, <laughs> of the entire Star Trek what's to come, you know, and uh, it, like tomorrow is yesterday, right? That's the first real time travel episode. You know, I mean, she, mm-hmm. she wrote the, I mean, yes, they time traveled in the naked time. Right. But, uh, you know, that and time, time Trek has become a thing now. Right. I mean, that's Star Trek is not Star Trek without time travel. And that's the first one that did it. And, you know, and then I think it's interesting that she had uh, she had another pseudonym, uh, Michael Richards, not Michael Richards yeah. from Seinfeld. <laughs> right, right. But when she uh, she she wrote the Enterprise incident, that was the last episode that her name was attached to. That was in the third season. But she wrote two more third season episodes, that which survives and the way to Eden. So uh, a couple of notes on that. That which survives is actually the last episode of the original series I saw. Like that's the the last one I had left to see. And then when I finally bought those laser discs a few years ago, as I often <laughs> talk about, I was like, I'm going through them, watching all the ones I just. You know, there was probably about four or five that just hadn't seen for whatever reason. That was the last one. And that's, that was whatever. Um, I mean, not the biggest, I really have no opinion of it, really. <laughs> so I can't really, maybe that's why she put it under a, a, a pseudonym. I know she was working freelance. It might have been like a, a business reason, you know, because you can't have certain names on certain projects if you're a freelance or something like that. That might have been why. Um but I know for sure that the way the Eden, you know, she conceived that as something totally different. That was going to be like McCoy's daughter. Uh, yep. And that, that completely changed to what it was. I don't think it's as bad as people say, but I would, if I was Dorothy Fontana, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to use my pen name for this one. So <laughs> I would. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely come up with some kind of crazy name like Zach Moore or something and <laughs> attach it to <laughs> But yeah, I, I I hear you. I I I'm not sure how any of that works. From and and I know people are very sensitive, and there's union rules and all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff when it comes to writing. But I, I you know it, it, there was so many people, and I think it was probably through Star Trek that I learned that so many people write with pseudonyms uh, right. constantly. You know, um, it it wasn't just she wasn't the only one. Yeah, <laughs> Gene cool. Kuhn did it as well. He wrote a few yeah. episodes under Lee Cronin. <laughs> right? And it's just, why? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just it's just odd to me. Uh, but you know, be that as it may, uh, you know, ten ten uh, episodes that that um, you know how think about it. There's 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 a lot of TV shows now, um, but. Back in the 60s, there were three television networks, only three. Uh, you know, take away the game shows, you only had pretty much, and, and the soap operas, which uh, I don't want to degrade by saying that, that the writing on those isn't whatever, uh, but 
uh, you know, you had a very limited amount of space, uh, no pun intended, mm -hmm. to come up with, um, you know, a, a TV show, a plot line, and then an episode. And to me, you know, um, very, very few people uh, have the honor and the ability to write at a certain level where it's actually going to be captured, um, on, aired, uh, you know, your name attached to it, all those different things. Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's immortal. <laughs> it's, it's there forever. Uh, and, and how wonderful is that, uh, for a legacy, you know, uh, I, I know that the game has changed a wee bit where there's so many different TV show, TV stations and, uh, streaming services and things like that, that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's still, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of writers that go with it, but still it's an, it's an incredible accomplishment today for that to happen. Think of how incredible it was for a woman in the 1960s to actually make that happen. Uh, that's, like I said, you, you wouldn't just be a good writer and, and be successful. You had to be an incredible writer, uh, mm -hmm. with, um, I think a lot of tenacity and a lot of humility, knowing how many things change when you start writing these things, uh, and to persevere and, and to do, and to do what she did. So, um, no, I, I'm in awe of, of all the writers on all these shows, <laughs> not good or bad. Cause I always say to myself, you know, could you do any better? Uh, you'd like to think you could. Uh, but if you ever tried to, to write anything, uh, outside of reports for school, it ain't easy. It ain't <laughs> easy. Yeah. I mean, she ended up writing one eighth of the show. Look at it that way. So pretty good. Percentage. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But actually, but she touched what the first, the first two full seasons. Yeah. Uh, and her editing capability, right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure there was a couple of words here, chair, changed here and there to make sure that the dialogue made sense when, you know, somebody else came on board or, or whatever. So um, that's that's a tremendous amount of work. I mean, these folks were killing themselves to get these things turned out. Mm -hmm. And speaking about work, I mean, she basically became the showrunner for the animated series. That was my understanding of how the hierarchy worked over there. Uh, and she wrote, what is indisputably and arguably the best episode of the animated series yesteryear. Uh, she, br she brings back uh, Sarek and Amanda from Journey to Babel, who she had introduced in the show. Uh, mm -hmm. We talk about Spock's past, which was also referenced in that episode. Also, we tie in the Guardian of Forever, back before Harlan Ellison was suing everyone who tried to use his intellectual property, so we got that one last time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, It's a great episode, and again, it's, a, it's about something, you know? It's about, like, the you know, rites of passage and dealing with loss as a child and uh, family dynamics you know i mean there's so much going on in this animated episode and it really does get you in the feels and and i i rank it up there with the, among the best of all star trek animated or live action regardless i agree with you zach you know i don't think i've ever given it its due in terms of ranking it like that when you look at your total episodes and not that we've done a lot of shows like that we've done a few mm -hmm. but um you know i've never kind of sat back and said okay where does yesteryear fit in all that and uh, i would have to say it would be it would be up there it was um one of the few animated episodes that i could truly watch and get into um and enjoy versus kind of you know um not not getting lost in the plot or being distracted by you know um all the different elements that went into that show you know like i said the crazy animation or sometimes the voices or whatever it can kind of pull you out <laughs> <laughs> you know especially right. when you rewatch it 
you know, not, not taking anything away from, from the effort that was put into it, but filmation was unique. Uh, but yesteryear, um, you know, that would have been a great live action uh, episode. It would have been a great one hour episode. There was a lot of things that, yeah. um, that could have been pulled into that. And, you know, I, I, I really did. And, and it was clever too. I mean, um, I think it, is it, is, is it fair to say um, it's the only real time travel where, you know, the, uh, until Star Trek 09, I guess, I guess it's the second time with Spock met Spock. <laughs> now that I think about it. Yeah. I never put that together before until just now, but you know, that was the first time I can remember where, you know, a future year, you goes back to see a past you or something. Mm. Along yeah. That, and the first time the know. franchise for sure. Yeah. And, and this, this episode, right. The, Cause the animated series is, it's always gone back and forth between like, is it canon? Is it not? Does it count? Right. Uh, this one has always been considered canon, even when the animated series was kind of like that redheaded stepchild for, <laughs> for a while there. The franchise, like, uh, it has been referenced visually and in dialogue. Uh, afterward, you know, you mentioned Star Trek Nine. There's a lot of yesteryear in Star Trek Nine, young Spock on Vulcan and bullies and things like that. So, uh, another foundational piece of Star Trek, even from the animated series, she's cranking out foundational Star Trek. So, still had it in the '70s for sure. And you know mm. that only that only lasted two years, unfortunately, the animated series. Uh, but it did it did finish the five year mission. And my, talk about canon, my head canon. Those are the last two years of the five year mission. There you go. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is done. So then, when Gene Ronberry got you know back control of Star Trek, uh, at least for television, yeah. uh, he brought his friends back from the original series. Called in, you know. Robert Justman, David Gerald, and of course DC Fontana, and they co-wrote Encountered at Farpoint together, the the, the launch of the next generation. And uh, of mm-hmm. all the modern era pilots uh, from the you know the Berman era of Star Trek, uh, I think it's generally accepted this is the weakest one <laughs> of them. But I don't know how much blame he can put on Dorothy Fontana for that because she kind of wrote her own script, and then Roddenberry came in and added you know the Q element to it to the story she had already written and kind of rejuried everything around and then he got co-credit and and that kind of started kind of like the as I understand it the like the souring of their professional relationship where like she had done this and he kind of come in and got co-credit and that kind of stuff and you know when you're you know you're just doing what you do you know things happen and you never know what happens professionally but she did stay on you know for the rest of the first season but uh she didn't go on to write any episodes just herself for, for next generation. I mean, she, she was part of the naked now with, uh, John D F black who wrote the naked time. So, you know, very mm-hmm. much an original series, uh, inspired episode there. And, uh, you know, a couple more, but I don't know if you have anything else to say about these, but actually heart of glory. She, uh, co-wrote that with, uh, Maurice Hurley and Herbert Wright, Maurice Hurley, uh, one of the executive producers for next gen, the first couple of years of it at the Borg, very interesting character. Mm-hmm. He was the focus of Shatner's documentary chaos on the bridge. Just a very interesting guy. Heart of Glory is actually my favorite Next Generation season one episode. It's really the first Worf episode. It kind of establishes the Klingons in the 24th century, and and I just mm-hmm. and, but but it was like they were still TOS kind of enough. Like they weren't. It wasn't all just like Viking samurai honor glory die tomorrow. Like that's great. We all love that, but it gets old after a while. So these are kind of some more interesting characters, and it's uh, Von Armstrong's first appearance on Star Trek, and he goes on to be very very, very many characters throughout all the series, aliens, humans alike. Uh, probably best known to play Admiral Forrest on Enterprise. But anyway, uh, I always thought it was interesting that she had a hand in that. I don't know how big a role she played in writing that episode, but uh, that's my favorite from Next Gen Season 1, and, and I'm glad that her uh, that she stayed on long enough to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, her her contributions there, it, it, again, it's funny, I don't, I don't remember um, 
ranking pilots before. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, like all, all, all things through um, context and lenses change. Uh, they change in time or whatnot. But I, I always thought Encounter at Farpoint was, was a good kickoff um, to the new series. I, I, I didn't dislike it. Um, I remember when it aired, you know, the first time and how excited we were to have Star Trek back on TV and to see if they could pull it off. And, and maybe because it reminded me a little bit of the motion picture with kind of the, the cerebral piece of it. You know, you're, mm. you're solving a mystery that's um, yeah, cleverly done. Let's just and, let's and, put it And you had, you had Decker and Ilya in it as well. So that was <laughs> Yeah, you certainly, certainly did. So, you had a, yeah, there were definitely a lot of connections there. Well, look, um, but speaking of connections, though, Ken, I, I, mean, I think the McCoy scene between him and Data is perfect. And I have no doubt yeah. that she played a role in that, having the voice of McCoy coming through. And people say, what's the best appearance by an original series character in the Next Generation era? I'm like, yeah, you know, probably probably McCoy in the Counter of Firepoint because it's just enough. You know, they don't even say his yeah. name, but you know who he is. And it's so on point and perfect. And, uh, and mm-hmm. I believe that she definitely had a hand in, in finding the voice of that character again all those years later. So, Yeah, yeah, I'm sure she did. But, um yeah, it, it, that's an excellent, excellent point. And I agree with you, too, on, on Heart of Glory. I think that is by far the best episode. Of, it, it was certainly the most exciting. And, you know, that, that's what I like about her is her ability to, uh, you know, to write a, a good story um, with, with good drama. But I also like the, uh, the ability to, to mix that drama with drama. That's already Boston of me. <laughs> that drama with, um, with good action as well like she did in the enterprise incident or the ultimate computer yes. um, and, you know, and, and doing that again in, in heart of glory and having, you know, a little bit more upgraded effects as time went on, but that was very good. It was, it, like I said, she, she was something special and um, she, she definitely, um, you know, helped frame the next generation. And, you know, I know a lot of people are critical of the first season. I, th- I think for, for good reason here and there, but it did find its legs with a lot of the things that they established very early on. Yeah, definitely. I think that last stretch episode, which Hardwood Glory is part of, is probably a really, actually, really great stretch episode. It's Arsenal of Freedom, Skin of Evil, Neutral Zone. You know, there's just some great, there's some great Star Trek in there. And uh, there is. she went on her way after Next Generation Season 1, as David Gerald did, as Robert Justman did. Uh, but did, she did come back for Star Trek for one last uh, script, and that's Dax, which is the first season episode of Deep Space Nine, where. Dax gets put on trial for something her previous host did, Curzon did. So it's, you know, right. courtroom drama and the grand tradition of Star Trek courtroom dramas. You know, she actually looking at her resume here, DC Fontana hadn't really been, uh, played a role in any of those. So I'm glad she she got to enter her name and into that uh, catalog there. And it's a pretty good episode. You know, it's season one, so you're still trying to figure out what these trill are all about. And it's actually an interesting idea. Like if you were like basically a reincarnated version of someone, are you responsible for their crime? So it's a very... Very highbrow kind of sci-fi idea, and you know, not, people don't really. There, there's the, the trill and all that. Their whole species. There's so much more that's done with them throughout the, the show. People don't really focus in on this one, but uh, I think it's a solid episode. I don't. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. and that was her last uh, last appearance on Star Trek, or her last uh, on-screen credit on Star Trek, I should say. Yeah, yeah. It was you know it was a fine episode. I you know to me, um, you're right. The, I guess it just goes to show the. Um, um, the, the wide range that she had as far as creativity goes, because, you know, if a lot of times with, with certain writers, you can kind of, they're kind of good in a very special way, maybe with very certain themes, 
but she goes all over the place and does it does them all pretty well. I mean, some of them may not hit the mark as much as as you would like, but you know, it, like I said, you you go from Encounter at Farpoint to Heart of Glory um, with uh, <laughs> three three episodes in between. Uh, <laughs> that, that that's that, that's quite a uh, quite a swing. And so, you know, to have that, like, again, I, I always marvel at people with that skill set, but uh, I think uh, her, her ability to, to write about almost any subject within, uh, within the frame of Star Trek has been uh, extremely impressive over the years. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's that easy to, it's, it's tough to put Jeannie back in the bottle, which is what they were trying to do with TNG. And, and you know, maybe it didn't hit on all thrusters, as they say, coming out of the gate. Uh, but it picked up quickly, and and again, I think if um, if there wasn't so much chaos on the bridge, and you know, uh, we heard the same thing from David Gerald too, right? That it, it, a lot of the things that they were trying to put out there or whatnot were being countermanded or rewritten and all that stuff. If if they were able to really fly uh, without all the craziness, uh, who knows? You know, it, it might have started off much differently. Um, and it's hard to say if it'd be much better or not, but I, I assume that it would have. Yeah. And then, Ken, did you ever see the fan film To Serve All My Days with Walter Koenig? I did, yes. Um, it's funny, I, I didn't recognize it by title, but I, I do remember him, and I remember the long, long hair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that he had. <laughs> Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I, I did see it. I, I can't say, I can't recall, um, you know, if it was one of those where I, I walked away going, boy, that, that was really good. I, I like the ending of it. But um, yeah, I, I did see it. What were your thoughts on it? Well, are you talking about the ending where Chekhov dies? <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, uh, so to serve all my days was part of the Star Trek New Voyages and later Star Trek Phase Two fan productions. And they were the first ones that really paved the way for fan production. So I have a lot of respect for, you know, what what they did. And and their sets were great, and their production values, you know, they were hit or miss. Uh, acting was also hit and miss. But uh, you know, this was an episode where they got they got DC Fontana back to write a script. This wasn't this wasn't like a script she had sitting around. This is one she specifically wrote, as I understand it. And then Walter Cannon came in and you know reprised his role as Chekhov because you know to finally get a real something meaty to do, you know, as Chekhov, and he mm-hmm. was excited about that. And yeah, I mean the the young guy who played Chekhov, uh, Andy Bray, I believe his name was. He was he was great. Yeah. He played off Koning very well because like, they had some scenes together. Like he was imagining his younger self and that kind of thing. And you see, you know, the whole the whole hook of it is, is oh, you know that disease in um, the deadly years the Chekhov thought he was cured from. Well, he wasn't, and he gets hit by some kind of radiation that re you know energizes that disease and he gets older. And of course, he ages into Walter Koenig and. But he has one last job he's got to do because he's the best navigator on the ship, and he does it. And, and he, right. he uh, goes out in a, uh, on a high note. Uh, and then, and then they, so actually, they, well, behind the scenes there, they released a, a, like a special edition version of this episode with like you know improved or more accurate to the 60s special effects, as the idea was. And then he doesn't die at the end. There's like a post credit scene where he wakes up and it was a nightmare or something because people are like, well, what? <laughs> He just killed Chekhov. Like, you can't, like, is this like, <laughs> I understand that it's like, you know, it doesn't matter now, but like, if this really was going to be the fourth season, which is what they were, you know, thinking themselves as back in the day. But hey, it was, it was, it was a great story with, for Chekhov, you know, a guy that didn't really get a lot of attention until the movies, really. And, uh, that was, that's what mm-hmm. attracted Koenig back. And 
Obviously, DC Fontana has that, you know, again, she has that voice and knowledge of what the original series is all about because she helped define it. And also, complete side note, uh, she did write the unmade video game Star Trek The Secret of Vulcan Fury. It was a video game that was supposed to come out from Interplay, and it was in the mid, it was in the late 90s, actually. And I remember I was, I was such a big fan of the Star Trek computer games back then. I couldn't wait till this came out because they got the voices of all the original series cast back and they recorded them. And they were like, coming mm-hmm. soon. There was these awesome trailers. I like, man, I cannot wait for this game. And then it kept getting pushed back. And then it just like disappeared and was lost into the ether because there were lots, lots of behind the scenes issues with interplay and whatnot. And unfortunately, that never saw the light of day. But she actually wrote the story for that. And, you know, or everybody who was into those back in the day are always in the hopes that they'll find these files or they'll at least find the script and do something with it one day. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, excellent idea to go to DC Montana to write a story about, you know, Vulcan's Romulan split, that kind of thing. And that's what the crux of that story was going to be. And she wrote it. So, uh, maybe one day we'll see like the manuscript for the, <laughs> for that. Cause I'd be, I'd be curious to see what she came up with because if you, Hey, if you wanted somebody to write about the Vulcans, you know, she, she's a go-to. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad you're into that stuff and you know that stuff because I don't know. Anything. <laughs> but I, I, you know, and I, but I, one thing I do see is how um, how important uh, the um, the outlines of the games are, and, and you know, it's 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 quite a production to put them together, uh, and that's just from me watching the commercials. So <laughs> I mean, I I, I I do I do pick it up, but it, you know, to me, it's um, I, I guess. If, if you're the person that, that, that knows the subject matter the best, why wouldn't you pull in the best to try to pull it together? So I, I don't know. How, did, did you even see a sampling of the game or whatnot? Or well, was there, it just something that they... There are trailers and there are some gameplay uh-huh. tests. Uh, and there's a lots of like production artwork and that kind of thing, but it never got released in a completed form. That was kind of the problem. Like they kind of, their, their reach exceeded their grasp of what they were trying to do with that game. And then it just interplay just had to cut costs and they showed it and um that's all there was to it but it, yeah, it sounded like it was a real, it basically was about some kind of ancient weapon from the Rhymeland vulcan split and they were trying to find mm-hmm. it and uh the secret of vulcan fury right? that's where the the title comes from but uh yeah no it would have been cool another uh, you know they're lost adventure of from the cast of the original series we, we have a lot of those as we know so <laughs> yeah yeah there are quite a few but um you know, I, I think, Zach, that uh, the, the key um, thing for me in, in all of this discussion is, um, and, I, and I'm smiling as I say that, is we were certainly blessed uh, to to um, to know of, I can't say I knew, but to know of Dorothy Fontana and um, to get to experience what, what she had put down on paper, come to life, and, and put together some incredible stories and she herself is an incredible story. I think uh, it would be great to see a um, uh, uh, the, the Star Trek team come together and, and and maybe do a little biopic on her because it, it would be kind of cool to see, um, it, you know, uh, how she did what she did and and the interactions at the time. If there's people out there that know it well, and it seems like there has to be, but um, you know, I, I, she's definitely going to be missed. It's um, it's it's always sad when this happens, but I'm I'm always very um, I'm happy for people that that leave a legacy behind that make other people happy, and she definitely did that. So, um, you know, we 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 wish her and her family uh, we wish her family the best, and uh, hopefully 
she and the great bird are up there now um and checking out all these new star trek shows that'll be coming out (laughs) (laughs) very good no you're absolutely right i mean she is right for a biopic i mean if you look at the television show mad men you know peggy olsen one of the main characters there she she has a very similar kind of trajectory and identity as as dorothy fontana did in real life you know just starting out as a secretary typist had higher aspirations worked her way uh to the top of her field and as you said she really was at the top of her field writing for broadcast tv primetime in the 60s you can't get much better than that for someone who wants to be a a television writer and uh yeah i'd be all about it and i think you keyed in on a perfect thing uh, for why her work is so renowned and has such longevity is because she really did. She he could balance like action and character moments and voices and also just like messages or actually things to chew on or things to think about. And you look at all these episodes and all this work she's done. And there's even from the good to the bad across the spectrum, however we think they turned out, uh, all those elements are there. And that's why she's such a foundational and a memorable writer in the history of Star Trek. And, and we're better off for having her in this world and working on our favorite franchise. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said, my friend. Dorothy Fontana isn't the only thing we're talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. I knew from the beginning it was going to be a very large and complicated undertaking. I was asked by the editor and the licensor to come up with a storyline for Picard that would deal with the fallout of what I unleashed in my novel Section 31 Control, in which Section 31's crimes, and in fact its very existence, are publicly exposed to the Federation at large as well as its interstellar neighbors. Earl Grey. Troy looks down at her empty stomach. Let me do this part. I'm going to act it. Okay. Troy looks down at her empty stomach and frowns telepathically. <laughs> oh, I wish. Listeners, could. you couldn't see it, but I did that. <laughs> oh, okay. LaForge. <laughs> Computer, locate a big thing of chips. <laughs> to the journey! What about the basics, planet? That planet's not bad. There's a lot of wide open spaces. You just have to avoid going in the caves. Yeah. I mean, anthropologically speaking. No spelunking on that planet. You can spelunk on the. <laughs> Or unicomplex, but you can't spelunk on that planet. No. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. That he said... He was taking the new body out for a ride? Yeah, that was great. (laughs) I mean, it was a great line. It just doesn't really fit what really happened. Like, he wasn't out there dating other people. Well, he was trying to figure out who this new Culber was, you know. No, I know, but... it was like funny. The it was lighthearted. It, right. It just didn't. It just doesn't fit what he actually did. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, 
Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm.com and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon... Thank you, as always, to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, Dan Rhodes, and Mike Richards. Your contributions, your help, your support, they mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me... You can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Holding to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. I'm also the co-host of Franchise Fatigue, a podcast where we look at sequels, remakes, movie franchises, and when a franchise gets fatigued. You can find us on Twitter at UFP Earth, part of the United Federation of Podcasts. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.